You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here with a new novel. This time, it is Anthony Horowitz's The Magpie Murders. We are discussing parts one to four, and we're joined on the line by the wonderful Andrew Popel from Final Draft. Andrew, it's so good to have you back on the show. You were our first guest ever, and it's it's good to, you know, come home, come home to family. <laughs> it's It's exciting to be back, and you guys have given me... A really welcome distraction um, and a puzzle. So I appreciate it. In short, we are still going through our journey of metafiction and texts that question the relationship between the reader, the author, the page and everything in between. I'm not saying that we're about to throw you completely in the deep end, sir, but that's exactly what's about to happen, Andrew. I hope you're prepared mentally, (laughs) emotionally, spiritually for metatextual analysis. I hope you're ready. I really am. Look, guys, I I, I need you to know. I know I'm not I, I know I'm not allowed to like do any study. Like I'm not allowed to, you know, Google who done it magpie murders, but I will let you know um That's fair. I've I've listened to Phoebe Reads a Mystery and I managed to solve the first uh, Tommy and Tuppence. I've downloaded uh, Among Us, but I haven't played it yet. And I also, <laughs> I also to prepare for the Magpie Murders, I completely re-listened to the Counting Crows' first album, August, and everything after. Unless the killer turns out to I be Mister Jones, though, I don't think that helped. This is this is the kind of effort I expect you to put in from now on, Herds. Yeah, um, for sure. I Look. need you to download video games and not play them for your study. <laughs> I usually just play them when I download them, but you're right. Maybe that's the step I've been missing all these years. Anyway, we at this point in the novel have uh, witnessed the the funeral and mm. uh, something something of the after- oh aftermath of the death of Mary Elizabeth Blackston. And as we get towards the tail end of our venture, we've also seen the death of Magnus Pye, a wealthy local landowner who was Miss Blackston's employer. Well, that's, that's very much part of the kind of setup, isn't it? That Anthony Hurwitz is using his his fictional author which is part of the you know the metextual layer of this story, Alan Conway to write this uh, this story. And in the very beginning of the novel, we have this stretch talking about how how amazing the novels are um, and how much uh, the detective ethics punt, who we'll, we'll get to in short order, uh, reminds readers of classic golden age detective fiction. We have all the classic characters, but we need to introduce them in a way that is palatable to a to a modern audience as well. And I think that the balance that, that uh, Horowitz actually strives for here. It's really, it's really admirable. I really, I appreciated the, the time and effort that he takes, you know, leaning into those elements. Hey guys, can I jump in? Because I, I mean, I don't want to throw a proverbial cat amongst your pigeons. Um, and I'm going <laughs> to hit as many, Agatha, I, I'm going to hit as many Agatha Christie <laughs> titles as I can in this. Anthony Horowitz didn't write write the Magpie Murders though, or Magpie Murders. It's Alan Conway, and and I I feel like what I'm going to try and solve sure. here is is key. And I don't want to I don't want to skip too quickly over this this three page intro <laughs> where we are told by yes. the the unnamed the unnamed uh, um, submissions editor that this book yeah. changed their life, and that oh, we, yes. we have been warned. And I two things. I'm not going to be able to solve. There's two mysteries here, I feel like, and I'm not going to be able to solve the first one because I only have three pages of information from this unnamed commissioning editor. But I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like there's something. Com- you don't think that's enough? <laughs> I feel like there's something coming. I'm, I'm going to actually have a go at it. 
I'm actually going to have a go at it, but I don't know if I've got enough information. I mean, sure, I would sure. be I would be very excited to see you predict the tail end of this book because I, I do want to be clear. One of the one of the setups for this novel is that we have that introduction that Andrew's mentioning there, where we go through with our submissions editor, and then we venture into the Magpie Murders itself. And the implication is, at some point, we're going to get back to that submissions editor and what happened. And one thing I really love about metatextual novels is the way that completely seemingly unrelated events will foreshadow exactly what's going to happen mm. later in the novel. So I'd be very, very interested to hear what you think in the Magpie Murders is about to uh, unfold in front of our, our editor. Was it a wing pun? Was it an unfolding their wings pun? Is that what that was? Maybe it is. Flex, that's terrible. I'm also really Love interested. I've, I've, got a, I've got a big overarching idea that, you know, I'm, I'm going to drop on you at some point, but I'm interested in the fact you've only mentioned sure. two deaths, but in fact, there are four deaths that I think are pertinent. Ooh. So we have, we have Mary, Mary Blackston. She is the mm-hmm. first... And really, uh, you know, really her, her death is maybe an accident, but dun, 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 it's a locked room mystery. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Then we have, yeah. then we have um, Sir Magnus and this mm. is looking, you know, this is a little bit more bloody. This is looking a little bit more modern, but we also have in the past <laughs> the yep. death of Tom, brother of Robin mm. Blackiston. And that, that is relevant, and I have a theory on that. But we also have the death of Dr. Redwing's father, which reveals important information. Now, I'm going to suggest that we may have – I don't think – I think it's a, a bridge too far to say Dr. Redwing's father was killed. But I think Tom I think Tom might be a murder mystery that we need to solve as well. Interesting. Because I think the fun thing is that as it's presented to Atticus, our detective in this story, he's presented uh, Mary Elizabeth Blackston's death and he's like, no, I'm not interested in this case. This isn't worth my time. And we have a bit of a journey for him in actually having to come around because he, he's been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And, you know, it's a bit of a journey for him deciding whether or not he actually wants to participate in things. You know, what does he want to do with his final days effectively? You, you might call it a hero's journey. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Well, yeah, like the, the fact that he explicitly like denies Joy's, like Joy's Sunderling's like call to action. It's very on the nose, I felt, in the way that it's kind of delivered. You brought up the cancer diagnosis and this is this is kind of linking mm. into my big overarching theory. This is kind of mm, my, sure. my, my meta fiction read on this. And I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to over overcook this. But I was very struck by the build up. So in part one, we meet the dramatis personae. We kind of get a here's here's your suspects. In part two, we meet Atticus, but he is mm-hmm. also he's sick and he is quickly dismissed. It's almost like oh, here's your detective. Actually, nah, he's not going to be part of the book. Yeah, and, and we get our two murders mm. in those two parts, or we we assume our two murders. Part three, oh no, Atticus is back, and he's going to investigate. Then in part four, we get the questioning of the suspects to begin in earnest. But as this all unraveled, it struck me how we're hitting all the notes, particularly of Agatha Christie. Oh yeah, for sure. This is this is my my big overarching meta theory about Alan Conway's Magpie Murders, not Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders, Alan Conway's. I think this is a pastiche of Agatha Christie in particular. And I think Alan Conway is murdering Agatha Christie, so to speak. Atticus Point, even though he is, you know, he's dying, he's of the old guard dying off, he's portrayed fairly positively. 
Um, like he's just been diagnosed with life dooming cancer. I guess if if our plan is to like deconstruct or to condemn or or move on from whatever form that takes in your mind, Andrew, uh, the Agatha Christie uh, murders. Atticus Punt is a very charitable depiction of Poirot, a character who even Agatha Christie has said that she she got kind of sick of him. So why do you think that we're being shown such a charitable side of Atticus Punt? Okay, so I'm going to – there's there's a lot of my, – my, my reasoning can be a bit of a hot mess, so I'm going to drop I like in to a little hear. bit of – um... No, it's okay. That's why I'm poking at it. That's exactly why I asked the question. We, we're looking at not just the killing of, of – Agatha Christie, so to speak, and moving into the modern future. We're looking at that whole era. We're looking at Dingle Dell mm. giving way for a highway. We're also looking at the possible motive that I know I'm not going to get to later, but the whole idea of the pie, <laughs> pie manor and the entail. Now, I mean, most people mm. would not have much of an idea of an entail. The most famous entail we all know about is Pride and Prejudice's entail. But basically this idea of the way property will pass down and it being a very, mm. very old sure. fashioned and then quite, quite vehemently spoken out against um, uh, anachronism of old English, the old English past. I think we're looking at a movement into the modern era. And I think that's what the magpie murders represents. I love it. I love it. I think we will, uh, we will take a pause there. We will prepare <laughs> ourselves for the later discussion of aforementioned uh, mystery details. I'm very excited to get into this. Herds, I'm a little scared. He sounds a little too on top of the text for me right about now. I am, look, I am excited for this. We may have met our match in only our second round. Yeah, look, I'm always excited having the new wind blow in and, and upset things. Uh, in our indeed, little cruise into the woods here. So, yeah, look forward to the next part. Let's go, Andrew. <laughs> you are listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Anthony Horowitz's, and by extension, Alan Conway's Magpie Murders, parts one to four. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I am joined on the line by Dr. Lucy Andrew and Dr. Samuel Saunders, all the way from the UK to talk about a wonderful new academic endeavor, The Detective's Companion in Crime Fiction, a study in sidekicks, a collection featuring the writings of Lucy, Sam, and many co-conspirators, including some names you might recognize here on the show, like Jamie Bernthal Hooker, who we've had on before. And uh, I believe author David Bishop also contributed. He did indeed. Lucy, Sam, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. I'm so excited to get into this and I'm hankering for the copy to arrive at my local library. Thank you for inviting us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. First of all, who are the sidekicks? We all know Holmes as Watson. We have a reasonable image of Poirot's after Hastings and maybe a vague memory of Nero Wolfe's Archie Goodwin's legs. But how broad is the sidekick uh, scope in this collection? Um, well, it's it's quite broad, I think, and it's deliberately broad. And in fact, when we originally had the idea for this and we sent out um, a call for papers, I think we got a lot more responses than we were expecting. Um, and some wonderful stuff that unfortunately we couldn't fit into this collection. Um, so we've tried to um, sort of combine some of the really well-known sidekicks like Watson, Hastings, um, with perhaps some slightly less well-known sidekicks, or perhaps one of the things that we, we thought was important was to kind of broaden the definition of what we were thinking of a sidekick and its history. So we were looking at TV here, 
Um, we're looking at comics and graphic novels. We're looking at children's literature and young ad- adult fiction as well. Well, I mean, listen, as a firm advocate for the sidekick being the true hero of most crime and detective fiction, I'm right there with you. I'd love to see more work on it. So I'm super encouraged to have you guys, you know, stepping step forwards and kind of pressuring people into moving that along. I guess one archetype that I saw kind of reading through the synopsis of this that was really interesting to me is looking at kind of, you know, the uh, pretty but not so pretty sidekick, you know, the the femme fatale role and somehow i realized we've actually managed to avoid this kind of archetype outside of uh yosef skoreski's eve adam on this show but why do authors so often give us reason to doubt strong women as sidekicks and why should readers be excited to see that mold challenged yeah that's a a really good question and and some something that we wanted to do was to kind of pick up on some of those sidekicks that were I guess, unfamiliar in some ways that weren't in this kind of traditional mold. And and actually, that was the one that was most surprising to me, I think, from the abstracts that we got in, thinking of the idea of the sidekick um, in uh, hardball detective fiction, because we very much think of these um, being as sort of lone wolf figures. In a way, that was the most exciting, I think, when we could see these female sidekicks um, to male detectives quite often, um, boy sidekicks to adult detectives, criminal sidekicks um, to seemingly um, non-criminal detectives, and seeing how that kind of muddies the water a bit in terms of what we think about that relationship and what it's doing and what it means. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the example that comes to mind most obviously, because you have a Batman poster on the wall behind you, Lucy, as as I see you here, though our listeners won't unfortunately be able to share in its glory, is that we think of, you know, uh, particularly modern adaptations, Batman as the joke and the Joker as such opposites. And really, in a lot of ways, that's kind of a sidekick role, which is kind of an exciting reframing of that typical relationship as adversaries. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I think we've been seeing in modern crime fiction, particularly in film and television more recently, this notion of the relationship between the te- detective and criminal changing into a way where actually they become, you know, each other's sidekick quite often. Um, and the criminalization of the, the sidekick in some ways is, is something that's been really interesting to me. But also with, you know, Batman, that notion that actually something that I look at in, in my essay, which is on Frank Miller's All-Star Batman and Robin, um, is the way in which that kind of rewritten Robin origin story problematizes the initial relationship between having his, a, you know, in this version, a 12-year-old boy being co-opted into this violent adult criminal world. And it's kind of taking a, a sort of 21st century, more dark, gritty, realistic view on what that actually means. One of the things that your chapter in the book deals with, Sam, is the reader as a sidekick. And how does that hierarchy work with us when we're not even in the story? You know, how do how do we find our place in the detective fiction term uh, when we're not actually on the printed page? The, that's the really interesting question, because when there's the, when there's moments where the sidekick either is removed um, or in later iterations of crime fiction, which we've already touched on, becomes either somehow problematized as a criminal uh, or as a child or, or some other kind of um, relationship to the detective. They sort of lose their position as the, as the narrative voice that gives us our, our view of the detective. And so the kind of sidekick role if you like, as a, as a person who observes the detective in action directly becomes a bit of a vacuum and, and it's sort of filled by the reader. So we need to sort of understand the detective and trust the detective and, and, and uh, see what they're doing through our own kind of lens, if you like, and, and that narrative voice is removed. So, so you become the sidekick, you sort of move into that position and observe the detective 
directly. I guess the other thing that I wanted to wrap into that is that we've also seen this transition over into the modern day and you have a section in here looking on modern adaptations of Watson as a character. And to me, the thing tying all of what we've uh, spoken about so far together is that so many modern adaptations of classic detectives and their sidekicks, particularly Watson, we start to see them becoming foils for their detective a lot more. We start to see Watson standing up against Sherlock rather than just being this like, you know, dog with a camera on the back of his head chasing his master around. Why do we see that transition, do you think, in the portrayal of these characters? What is uh, what is kind of driving us to expect more from our sidekicks? It allows us to sort of reimagine the stories themselves um, in other ways. So, so, you know, I think Sherlock's character changes quite a lot depending on the Watson figure that sits behind him. So the more we flesh out Watson's character, the more the rest of the story changes. And I, and I think it's a, a kind of catalyst, if you like. Uh, for, for to drive out innovative, innovative adaptation. Yeah, I think there's also a way in which there's a kind of shift in the way that we're producing and consuming narratives today as well, particularly through shifts in you know, film and television, how we're watching things through streaming services, you know, changes we've got in um, serialised comics, for instance, and that notion that we're moving from those kind of standalone stories towards um, people wanting these serialised narratives where the psychic can't, quite have that um, reliability and kind of static nature. And also, you know, things like fan fiction, um, that fan fiction has, has given people the opportunity to take these seemingly peripheral characters and look at them and, you know, move them from the margins to the centre. Yeah, I think also the other thing that kind of comes to mind there is that because of how much more of a visual uh, you know how how much more visual our storytelling is these days, both with cinema, television, comic books, uh, compared to the early days of detective fiction. It it just feel weird to not see the companion on screen, whereas so much of the original detective sidekicks is from their perspective. You'd almost just have to stick a you know camera on someone's head and have them follow around the scene, and it'd just be a bit weird. Absolutely, it would, and I think I think also because the the kind of unique positioning of the sidekick as the authorial voice in classic detective fiction is transposed into, as Lucy says, a, a kind of new way of consuming narrative media across a long period of time. I mean, the, the home stories originally were serialized, or, or sort of self-contained short stories in a serial form, and I can think of quite a few examples of, of, of televised detective fiction where the detective psychic relationship becomes problematized or deliberately tense to to create kind of drama. I think. And when we see that on screen, we kind of want to see more and more of it. So there's lots of detective fiction where the psychic and the detective are at odds with each other because there's conflicting relationships or conflicting responsibilities. And that makes for good television, I think. I mean, we've talked a lot before about how the the, the, the psychic is the kind of um, narrative lens through which we observe the detective's activity. But at the same time, the sidekick figure acting as the authorial voice is also a necessary distancing tool between us and the detective themselves, because it's at its fundamental core is that that keeps us guessing about what the detective is actually doing. You know, they, they talk about the, the intelligence of the sidekick and whether they are a bumbling figure who doesn't understand what's going on. And I've always kind of maintained that that's a necessary tool of the genre. It's not fair on the sidekick to say that they are the stupid friend. They kind of necessarily have to be oblivious to what's going on around them. Otherwise, there'd be no mystery to solve because we just get it firsthand. I will never forgive Father Ronald Knox for calling Watson the stupid friend. 
of the detective and then also writing Angela Breton as the best sidekick in, <laughs> in crime fiction. <laughs> exactly. Well, I suppose we will wrap that there. It has been such a pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader. Thank you so much for joining me and we'll have links up on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy. Thank you, Lucy and Sam, for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. We are discussing Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders. This is Death of the Reader. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are joined by Andrew Popel from Final Draft. Andrew, it's so good to have you on the show. It is wonderful to be here, um, scratching away at my little grey cells. <laughs> That's right. We are discussing <laughs> Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders, parts one to four. Andrew Popel is in the hot seat. It's true. You have to, sir. Solve this murder mystery. We want the who, the how, and the why, and we'll just restate a couple of stipulations that we've added recently. Oh, no. So Poor Andrew. <laughs> we have three points up for grabs. We have three points up for grabs. One of those points is for presenting a different theory, both this and next week. Mm-hmm. I think you'll manage with that one. We also have a couple of loose up-in-the-air points for the who, how, and why, kind of depending on the tone of the novel, but I won't state too much for the for sake of not leading the witness. So I hope you're ready to uh, step up to the plate, solve the two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe more deaths that we have going on in this maybe novel. a whole dozen murders. Let's hear right out the gate, Andrew. Who do you think the killer is in Alan Conway's The Magpie Murders? All right, we'll start with Alan Conway, because I do, I do have a theory about Anthony Horowitz's <laughs> Magpie Murders too. Here we go. Here we go. Yep. Alan Conway, let's go. I think we have got three dead bodies, and I, I think- it's not all the same killer, but I am, I'm it's going for my, my first, I'm really, I'm really hesitant to pin this down because I don't think I have enough evidence, but I'm actually going to say um, Lady Frances Pye. Oh. I'm going to say Lady Frances Pye for the killer of Mary Blackiston and also Sir mm-hmm. Magnus Pye. Why do you think it's, it's Lady Frances then? You know, because she, look, she's just a well-refined, well-to-do lady is what she is. Is she really capable of murder? It does seem to be the case that we're pointing at some connection of, you know, wealth and inheritance as the motive for the murders in Mm. Alan Conway's Magpie Murders. So why, pray tell, would one of the, you know, people with easiest access to the money in question be the one responsible? Okay, Mm -hmm. so here's the thing. And as I think about it, I'm not willing to rule out that she hasn't had a hand in Tom's death. Um, And this Mm -hmm. is this is my this is my reasoning. Um, and we'll, let's even start with Tom. So Mary, Tom, Robert, and uh, Mary's husband move into the lodge and are being looked after and Mary is the cleaner. I believe who's the dad is in question for possibly Robert and Tom. Um, I think Sir Magnus uh-huh. and Mary have had a fling at some point in the past. Scandalous. There may be some confusion. I think maybe Lady Frances knew there was an affair but she has potentially killed the wrong son. And why Why would she do that? Ooh. Well, because Freddie is her son. She wants the entail to go to her son. Um, the reason she's killed uh, Mary, I think, probably relates to the overarching situation. And also Sir Magnus. I think there's probably something in his business dealings that are threatening the overall kind of cohesion 
of the estate well, and the entail and what Freddie wants, uh, what she wants for Freddie. The question I have is that if she has uh, perhaps killed the wrong son, doesn't really know the full extent of the situation, and has also killed Magnus, mm. surely that means that the inheritance is going to go away to the people she doesn't want it to go to before she has any chance to deal with it. You know, why would she engage in such a, a, a brash plan to try and get this inheritance? Here's the thing. Why would she kill Tom and not Robert as well? Like, why not even both, you know? I'm worried about Robert. Like, let's let's just be like, I want to call. I want to be like, hey, Robert, are you okay? Um, can you watch out? <laughs> Can you watch out for more cars falling on you? So, so, so Magnus has gotten Robert yeah. a job and tried to get him away from the village. He mess, he messed that up. He got drunk in Bristol. He's back in mm. what is it, Saxby on Avon. Um, he's had a really bad accident at uh, the mechanics where he mm. works. Crushed his hand. Could have killed him. I, I don't, I don't know that that wasn't somehow involved. I'm worried for Robert. I suspect that he may be in line. I mean. Like, what are the finances looking like? And maybe Lady Frances is somehow is somehow worried about how that's going to play out. Because remember, she she um, yeah. she tells Jack Dartford that she hasn't got any money independent of Sir Magnus, and I think that's what's going on. I think the uh, the fun idea that you've kind of challenged here is that it sounds like you have a uh, a pretty a pretty clear idea of what you think is happening inside Alan Conway's The Magpie Murders. A nice sense of where the inheritance is going, the urgency that uh, Frances Pye may feel for the situation that she may or may not have put herself in. The question I have for you, Mr. Purple, is that you were saying that you wanted to take a stab at what was happening in the world above, in the world of Anthony Horowitz's The Alan Conway. Spill the now, beans. pray tell to me, <laughs> what what do you think our poor unnamed editor has uh, has going in, in her life that changes everything relating to the texts of this very tome. Hey, can I just double check, guys? You, you guys have read this. You guys know where this is going? Oh, absolutely. That's how it works. Everything you say, work. everything you do, I'm, I'm reading as well. So I, I, I read the book. I read, I even read praise for Alan Conway's <laughs> Magpie Murders to give myself an idea. Okay, I want to point out to you first, I don't have a good one for Tom, but Mary Blackiston was supposedly killed by the Hoover. Um, mm-hmm. So Magnus was supposedly killed by an ancient sword. Yep. Yeah, he got his head cut off. I feel like people are being symbolically killed by the trappings of their their you know nominal status in society. And I wonder, mm-hmm, sure. I wonder if somehow our unnamed editor um, is implicated by the pen. Are you suggesting, sir? Are you suggesting, sir, that our unnamed, unpresent character on the page, who we have been introduced to purely by three pages at the beginning, could in fact be the culprit of our surface world story in Anthony Horowitz's The Alan Conway's Magpie Murders? Okay, it seems almost impossible that our our commissioning editor could be the culprit in the sense of, you know, having picked up the sword. But there are too many interesting links that I can't ignore and that somehow they are, if, if not the culprit, but an inheritor of the culprit's deeds and somehow implicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at things like she describes her partner as being half Greek. Atticus Pund is half Greek. That's true. There's, there's some sense that Conway does not have good relations with this commissioning editor. And I think perhaps this text, Alan Conway's Magpie Murders, is being used to expose something about our unnamed commissioning editor. In fact, yeah, this will be the last revelation. I don't know. In some areas, I'm extremely impressed with the lengths you've gone to. But in others, I'm like, 
How have you overlooked this specific detail? How how could you possibly just push past this part of the yeah, story? There's not, they- not a lot of crime scene in Andrew Popel's theory here. Well, that's the thing. Do you think that the, the groundskeeper is an accomplice? Do you think that that's what's going on? Because he's the one who discovers the crime scene and calls the, the doctor over. Like, that's a classic, you know, trope. Can we trust the first responders to the scene of the crime? Do you think that maybe what we're being told through the text is not even is not even accurate, you know? I think we practically have to rely on unreliable narrators. I would suggest sure. that the way they have been presented to us fits in with that that sort of the larger meta narrative of Alan Conway's magpie murders. I feel like there's more to come and that more to come will inform my decision. Sure. Whether that takes me well, back into yeah. a more traditional approach or not. I don't think you need to to go back, but I think something worth considering is that if we're saying if your theory is that Alan Conway has written the magpie murders to to explain something or expose something or to prove a point then usually uh, you need to to engage with with aspects, you know, the, the aspects of the work that the author expects you to engage with in order to illuminate that that purpose. And I feel like solving the murders with some sense of, of certainty uh, is a part of that process. That's that's how I sort of approach these things. It'll be interesting to see how you go, uh, especially with more chapters next time we speak. That it will, uh, that it in will. solving... In solving everything. Next episode on the show, I want to be clear because this is a little confusing <laughs> chapter breakup. Very, very uh, silly. Because, because this book is is long and logistics are a necessary evil. Next episode on the show, we will be going up to and including The Road to Framlingham, which is a section in chapter two of part six of the novel. We're going to have to talk about how this novel is structured because it is, it is ridiculous. I, I get why it's the way it is, but- Oh, like, it goodness. does make a little bit of sense in terms of what happens in the story, the way that it is structured. It, but it does. It is a it is a little confusing to describe to you where we're going to because the formatting changes midway through the book, effectively. All right. Well, Andrew, once again, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader this week. We'll have you back next week, of course. But I wanted to ask before we let you go, uh, what do we have running on Final Draft this week? So if you are tuning in this week... Um, On Wednesday night, you will be able to catch a panel discussion on a new sweatshop anthology, Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry. And next Saturday, actually a really exciting interview. I've got Tony Birch coming up. He has a new poetry anthology and also a short short story collection. So this is, it's, August is a strong month. It's an anthology season for you, it seems. I've been really excited by the panels that I've been able to get together and having just incredible minds talking to each other. Uh, I can almost, you know, turn off my own mic and go away. Those are the best, the best. (laughs) The writing is, is so strong. So, I mean, I would love for people to tune in and catch these very important conversations. Fantastic. We will have links up on the podcast to uh, make sure you can get to those episodes. Thank you once again for joining us, Andrew, and we'll uh, see you right back here next week on Death of the Reader. Oh, I am looking forward to it. (laughs) 